So a couple years ago, I had the privilege to go to San Francisco. And on that trip, one of the things I, I definitely wanted to do was to go see the Golden Gate Bridge. I wanted to see it in person. And how, just by show of hands, how many of you have seen the Golden Gate Bridge in person? It, it's, it's really remarkable and beautiful. And you know that it's one of the most iconic suspension bridges in the entire world. In fact, uh, according to the Frommer's Travel Guide, it's the most photographed bridge in the world. It has a total length of 8,980 feet. And the longest span, the main roadway, is 4,200 feet. Every day, 110,000 cars travel and cross the bridge to go across the Golden Strait. Now, do you know how suspension bridges work? Anybody know how they work? I know Denise does in the back. She's smarter than pretty much everyone here. Well, like the name implies, suspension bridges suspend a deck by cables uh, from the two towers. And so I've, I've got a picture here. And so you see the two towers and there's the deck being suspended there. And what happens is um, the, the towers, those two main towers, support the majority of the weight as compression pushes down on the deck and that force then travels up the cables and it transfers uh, the compression to the towers and then ultimately all of that pressure dissipates directly into the ground from those anchors that are at the bottom there that you see in gray. Now the cables, on the other hand, they receive the bridge's tensional forces. And so you have the main cables that run horizontally. That's what makes those beautiful arches there. Those are the main cables. And they, they create that graceful arc. And they're connected by the two anchors on the opposing sides. And then you have these smaller cables. Those are called suspenders. And they run vertically between the main cable and the deck. And that's what's you know, holding it up. And, and those tensional forces... Uh, which are pulling in opposite directions, those, uh, the force of that is, 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 goes into the ground by those anchors. Ultimately, here's what you need to know. By compression and by tension, the bridge stays intact. And if there was too much compression, too much tension, the roadway would collapse and the towers would collapse. But if there was not enough tension, it, it wouldn't be stable. And so what, what you have here is these engineers who have perfectly calculated the right amount of balance and order between these tensional and compressional forces so that the bridge remains intact and strong so that people, without much thought at all, can cross this bridge and go from one side of the Golden Strait to the other. In today's passage in Genesis 25, we come to one of the major tensions in the Bible between God's purposeful sovereignty and human responsibility. It's one of the, the age-old questions that people ask in Scripture. See, on the one hand, as you read through Scripture, if you're honest, you'll see it clearly teaches that God has the right and power to do all that he decides to do. That he is sovereign and he's purposeful in everything that he does. You see that God has a plan. He has a purpose for creation so that everything comes to pass, not by chance, but by his divine hand. And at the same time, if you're reading the Bible honestly and straightforwardly, you'll see that the Bible clearly teaches that human beings make real decisions. We're free to make these decisions and those decisions were held accountable for them. 
And a lot of times you'll have people try to pit these two truths together. So you'll have this one group on one side that says, I absolutely believe in God's sovereignty and I don't believe in in free human responsible decisions. And you have this other group on the other side that says, no, God is not in complete control because humans make free uh, decisions. And uh, we we have control over those things. And people want to pit these two truths against one another. But friends, I would like to submit to you today that God's sovereignty and human responsibility are not mutually exclusive truths at odds with one another. Rather, they're complementary truths that coexist in harmonious tension. And trying to understand exactly how that works is really above the mental scope of the human mind. See, we can understand how a suspension bridge works, how the tension works. There's a mathematical formula An engineer could come up and explain even better than I did today how all that works. But there's a mystery to some of these bigger tensions in the mind of God of how his sovereignty and human responsibility work together. But we're going to try to look at the scriptures today to try to understand them as best we can. So as we look at Genesis 25, here's the big idea I want you to take away with today. God's sovereign plan unfolds in real time. Through real human decisions. If you're taking notes today, you can write that one down. God's sovereign plan unfolds in real time through real human decisions. And we'll see that through two movements in the text. In verses 19 through 23, first we'll see God's sovereign plan. In these verses, we're given insight into God's sovereign plan. Now, a lot of times we're not given that kind of access. There's, there's things that are happening. We don't always get that, that clear insight into the mind of God. But there are times in Scripture where the curtain is pulled back and we get to see behind the scenes. This is one of those times and we'll get a glimpse of God's plans where he comes out and tells Rebecca his plans. And then second, in verses 24 through 34, we'll see real human decisions. We'll see God's sovereign plan working out in real time as real people are making real decisions. Just like you and me, the characters in our story are making real free decisions every single day. We really do make them and we'll find that we really are responsible for our decisions. Our decisions have consequences, sometimes good, sometimes bad. But ultimately all of them bring about the plan of God. Then at the end, we'll consider how we can apply that big truth to our lives. So first, let's see God's sovereign plan. Now, before we jump into the, to the biblical text this morning, it's important to get a working definition of God's sovereignty. That's kind of a big word. Sovereignty, just as a word, not applied to God, is just a word that means that someone has the ultimate power. They have the, the ability to act or to do something independently and without outside interference. So we might say that a nation is a sovereign nation because they get to govern themselves. They, get to, they have the ultimate responsibility and the ultimate authority to make decisions without some other country interfering with those um, decisions. They can do as they please. So if you take that kind of idea of sovereignty and apply it to the divine, you see that God has the right and the power to do all that he decides to do. And his sovereignty is not, 
is purposeful, not arbitrary. So as God is deciding what to do, he's not capricious, he's not thoughtless, he's very thoughtful, very purposeful. He has a plan for every single thing he does. So what that means is not only does he have the power to do all that he decides to do, but all that he decides to do is working towards his purposeful plan. That's not like us. Sometimes we make plans and we've decided to do something, but we find that there are powers outside of us. There are things that are outside of our control that we can't control. And so things don't always go according to plan. So I'm a Little League baseball coach. We've got a playoff game today. I have a plan for today. I've I've thought through how we can win the game, but it may not go according to my plan. Right? There are forces outside of my control. I cannot make it happen such that we win the baseball game today. But that's not like God. Everything he decides to do happens exactly as he decides to do it. He is actually the only actual sovereign being in the world. All things come to pass. Not by chance, but by his divine hand. And it always accomplishes his purposeful end. Psalm 115.3 says this, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Job 42 verse 2 says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So because God is the ultimate sovereign being, he ordains all things And he's in total control of every single circumstance and every single situation going on in the world. Ephesians 1.11, speaking about our salvation, says, In him, in Christ, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Did you hear that? God works all things, not some things, all things, according to what? Your will? Nope, according to his will. When God is deciding what he wants to do, he does not take counsel from you and me. He merely takes counsel from his own will. So what that means is nothing, absolutely nothing, not your plans, not your intentions, not your successes, not your failures, nothing can hinder God's plans. That includes the biggest movements in history, to the completely mundane and ordinary, all of human history, including our individual lives, are moving towards God's purposeful end. And here's why that is such good news. Because God's purpose and plan for us and the world is to redeem and purify and make it new. And he actually has the power to bring about that plan. And so his plans will ultimately magnify his own glory and it will be the greatest good that you and I could ever come into contact with. So that's good news that he is in control. So with that understanding and definition and perspective on God's sovereignty, let's jump into the text. Verse 19 says, These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sisters of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now earlier in the chapter, 
As Genesis 25 opens up, we find out that Abraham has died at the good old age of 175. We've been studying his life over the last few weeks. We find that Isaac and Ishmael come together to bury their father in the, in the cave of Machpelah with Sarah. And if you remember, um, Abraham bought this cave uh, to be a burial ground. And it's really the only piece of land. It's the only tiny fulfillment of the promise he got to see in his life of the land that God had promised him. And he's waiting on the Lord to make good on his promise to give his descendants the land of Canaan. And now Moses turns the narrative to that next descendant, to Isaac. And we find out that his, his wife, Rebecca, is barren. So like her mother-in-law, Sarah, she's unable to have children. And if you sense a theme developing, then you're spot on, right? Sarah was barren. Now Rebecca is barren. In fact, we're going to find out that Rachel, Jacob's wife, is going to be barren. And every one of the patriarch's wives um, go through a season of barrenness as they await the son of promise. Now, this is such a big deal because we've, we've, we've learned from Genesis 3.15 that there's coming a son through this line of promise who will one day be the deliverer, the one who will deliver them from the hand of the enemy who will bring sin and Satan and death all to an end to bring about the redemption of the entire world. And so as this line of promise is developing, it's incredibly important that they have children. And so barrenness seems to be a block. It's an obstacle to this promise to be fulfilled. As we go on, we'll see in the time of the judges and prophets that Samson's unnamed mother is barren, as well as Samuel's mother, Hannah. Then as the world eagerly awaits a savior, we find that Elizabeth is barren, and yet in her old age, she gives birth to John the Baptist. And then the most miraculous birth of all comes not from a barren woman, but a virgin named Mary who gives birth to Jesus Christ. Now we have the vantage point of history looking back, and we can see that God is writing an amazing story. And you see along the way that these significant mile markers in God's plan of redemption have these signposts with these significant births. It's, it's, it's like showing you which way to look for the Messiah. Now, Isaac and Rebecca don't know what we know. We, they don't have the vantage point that we have. All they know is that they've tried and tried to have a baby, and they've been unsuccessful. Now, to Isaac's credit, he doesn't follow in the footsteps of, of his father at this junction point and take matters in his own hands with a concubine or some surrogate wife, as his father had done with Hagar. So that's good. That's in his credit for that. But rather, he engages in passionate prayer. And as the way, the way the text reads, you would think that he prayed and then immediately after, he, his wife Re, uh, Rebecca becomes pregnant. Because it says he prayed and then the Lord granted and answered his prayer. But in verse 19 we learn Isaac is 40 when he and Rebecca get married. And we learn that when Rebecca finally has the twins that she's 60 years old. And if you do the math, that's what? 20 years. 60 minus 40 is 20. There's your math lesson for the day. What that means is Rebecca and Isaac waited and prayed for 20 years before the Lord granted their request. We cover that in one verse, but I guarantee you it didn't feel like that. Year after long year, it seemed like their prayers were falling on deaf ears. But as they waited, by faith, they continued to pray. 
And if you think about that, right at the start of our passage, you see Isaac acknowledging the sovereignty of the Lord. Now, the text doesn't come out straightforwardly and say that. That's not usually how narrative works. So how do I know that Isaac trusted in the sovereignty of God? Well, first, for starters, Isaac, he's Abraham's son, the, the son of promise. The promise was given to Abraham, and now as Abraham's passed away, this promise and blessing has been transferred to Isaac. God has promised to bless him and to multiply his offspring, and he believes that God will make good on his promise to give him children. And so when they find out that Rebekah is barren, where do they turn to? They go to the Lord because he knows that God and God alone is the one who can bring life to a womb. Now, who of all people would know that? Isaac, right? Think about who he is. Think about who his parents are. Abraham was 100 years old. Sarah was 90 years old when they welcomed him into the world. The Bible says they were as good as dead. The Bible tells us that the way of of women had ceased from from Sarah, which means her womb was dead. In other words, it took a miracle for the Lord to resurrect her womb so that she could have a child. And they waited 25 years, Abraham and Sarah, from the first mention of the promise until Isaac was born. Not to mention all those previous years of bitter barrenness. And isn't prayer itself an implicit acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God? I mean, when you ask God for something, when you come to the Lord in prayer and ask him for something, aren't you at least conceding that he has the power to grant you the thing that you're asking? That he has the knowledge and the power to make those things happen? J.I. Packer in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, has this great passage on how God's sovereignty and prayer work together. He says this, the recognition of God's sovereignty is the basis of your prayers. In prayer, you ask for things and give thanks for things. Why? Because you recognize that God is the author and source of all the good that you have had already and all the good that you hope for in the future. This is the fundamental philosophy of Christian prayer. Prayer is not an attempt to force God's hand, but a humble acknowledgement of helplessness and dependence. When we're on our knees, we know that it's not we who control the world. And it's not in our power, therefore, to supply our needs by our own independent efforts. Every good thing that we desire for ourselves and for others must be sought from God and will come, if it comes at all, as a gift from his hands. Isaac and Rebekah know that God is the giver of life. That's why life is so precious. That's why it's so sacred. That's why from the womb to the tomb we are supposed to protect and uphold life. Life doesn't just happen on its own. Life happens because God makes it happen because God gives life. And not only that, but Isaac has, is the recipient of a promise that he and his descendants will multiply as descendants of Abraham. And so Isaac and Rebekah turn to the sovereign one who controls the world and who can answer their prayer. Just the very fact that Isaac and Rebekah turned to the Lord in prayer is an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty. Now let's look at verse 22 to see what happens next. The children, so remember she became pregnant, struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve 
the younger. So Rebecca conceives and she finds out that she's pregnant with twins. And these twins are going at it in her womb. And the text that we just read said the children struggle together within her. If you, if you look at the Hebrew, literally it means that the children smashed themselves inside her. So there's literally a war going on between these two twin boys inside her womb. And so Rebecca goes to the Lord in prayer to understand what is going on. And as the Lord responds to her, he is peeling back the curtain to give Rebecca an insight into his sovereign plan. What he tells her is that these two twins, these, these babies in her womb, are like two nations. They, they will end, one day grow into be these two peoples who will ultimately be divided. And so the struggle's going to be real, God says, between her two sons. Now he tells her the first one to come out, he will be stronger. Yet eventually this stronger one will serve the younger brother. Now, to us, this revelation from God might not sound shocking, but to Rebecca and to the first readers of Genesis, this would have been incredibly significant because this is a reversal of the normal order. You see, in ancient Jewish culture, the oldest son inherits a birthright that has deep significance. For starters, the oldest son, he would be the heir to succeed the father. He would become the new leader of the family, not only that, he would receive a double portion of the family inheritance. And so what it means is to be the firstborn, this right of the firstborn son means that they would have an increase of position and power and possessions. And when you consider this particular family, you add on to that the reality of these spiritual blessings that are coming because of the promises of God to the Abrahamic family. Now, I know we're in the early stages of the Bible, but if you trace this family through the Bible and this family line, you're going to find out that God intends to bring about his redemptive plan through this family. It's going to be the, the, the line that the Messiah comes from. That's why those genealogies in Matthew and Luke are so important and so careful to trace how Jesus Christ comes from this family line. And it's giving us this trajectory of the coming Messiah who would one day come to destroy sin and serpent and, uh, and, and who is Satan and usher in the kingdom of God where ultimately one day God will dwell again with his people. We've actually seen this reversal already. If you remember back in Genesis 4, Abel was chosen over Cain as the offering of the older brother Cain was rejected and Abel's offering was uh, accepted. We see it again in the line of Seth, the younger brother who was chosen as the line of promise. Recently, we've seen Isaac chosen over his older brother, Ishmael. Later, Rachel will be chosen over her older sister, Leah. At the end of Genesis, Joseph, the younger brother, is chosen over all the rest of his brothers. And we'll see that Judah, one of the younger sons, is chosen as the line for the Messiah, and so why does God do this? Why is God choosing for the, the younger to rise to prominence over the older brother? And sometimes when we ask, like, why is God doing something, we're left to wonder why. But there are other times when Scripture gives us really clear indications as to why he's doing this. If you flip over to the New Testament in the book of Romans, you'll see in chapter 9, verses 10 to 12, God uh, specifically talking about this incident. Paul writes, 
Not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, that's important, and had done, neither either, had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Do you notice what Paul is saying there? Before Jacob and Esau were born, before we get into the story we're about to get into where they trade the birthrights, before they had done anything good or bad, God chose Jacob. God does not choose on the basis of position or status. He doesn't choose on merit or works. Being born of Abraham is not enough. Being born of Isaac is not enough. Being the oldest doesn't matter. And what each of these reversals is showing us that in God's sovereign plan of redemption, God works by grace, not by merit. These unfavored sons receive what they didn't naturally deserve. These younger sons who, who, who shouldn't be the ones rising to prominence receive what they did not deserve. They received the blessing of being the firstborn even though they weren't the firstborn. They had no natural claim to it. So their only boast in receiving the birthright is that they received what they did not earn. That their only boast would be that they were recipients of grace. And if that sounds familiar, it's supposed to. Because that's exactly how salvation works. Ian Duguid is so helpful here. He says, God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He will harden whom he will harden. Our salvation is all of grace, not of merit. He chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He's quoting there from 1 Corinthians. He chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chooses the unfavored younger sons who have neither status nor strength to show that all is of grace from start to finish. Friends, if you are in Christ, we are all unfavored sons and daughters. We are the weak ones in need of of mercy. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been received. And he's raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Seven Mile, our favored, unfavored status and our weakness is here described in terms of being dead. The dead are completely helpless to bring themselves to life. If you're dead, you're, you, you've, you've never been in a more helpless state. And God shows mercy and favor and grace to us in our deadness simply because he loves us. Blessings don't come to those who help themselves. Salvation doesn't come to those who help themselves. It doesn't come through human effort. It simply and beautifully comes by the grace of God. Pastor R. Kent Hughes writes, Notice in all of this that God offers no explanations and certainly no apologies for his choice. The love of God transcends human convention. 
His sovereign grace will not bow to the order of nature or human expectations. His merciful election is a fact, whether we understand it or not. And I would add, whether we like it or not. God's purposes are set as they are incomprehensible. So the first anchor point of truth on our suspension bridge of sound doctrine is this. God is sovereign over everything including salvation. And he gives grace simply because he decides to and because he loves us. Not because we are naturally favored on our own, not because you're naturally good on your own, not because you're naturally deserving on your own, simply because he decides to. Now let's look at the second anchor point that brings balance and the right amount of tension, human responsibility. Look at these next few verses. Rachel, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red, all of his body like a hairy cloak. So they named him, his name Esau. And afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. And when the boys grew up, Isaac was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Jacob, or I mean Rebecca, Rebecca loved Jacob. So the time comes for the twins to be born, and the first one came out. And so typically in ancient Jewish culture, the first one to come out was considered the stronger one. Why? Because they kind of made their way to the front line to exit the womb. And so when he comes out, Esau is redheaded and hairy, like a little redheaded Wookiee kid, okay? And they name him Esau, which sounds a little like the Hebrew word for Harry. Okay, so Harry comes out and they're looking at him and they're like, okay, put him over there. But right on his heel, grabbing his heel, literally comes their next son, Jacob. You can just imagine in the womb, Jacob, though they're fighting, Esau pushed him down. Jacob is grabbing his heel, trying to, trying to pull him back in so that he can be first. It's like he's trying to fulfill God's prophetic word right there in the womb, right? To be the older, favored, firstborn son. And Jacob's name literally means he takes by the heel or he cheats. Like he's trying to trip up his brother. And you'll see in his life this theme of deceiving and tripping up. So even from birth, we can see what God told Rebecca was starting to be fulfilled. This, this battle going on in its earliest stages of infancy. As the Bible goes on, it describes Esau as a strong, skillful hunter. He's a man's man, a man of the earth. And Jacob is described as a quiet man who preferred the comforts of home to the outdoors. Because of their differences, we see that Isaac and Rebekah played favorites. Isaac favored Esau because he had a taste for wild game. And we're not told exactly why Rebecca favored Jacob. Maybe it's because he stayed close to home, kind of like a mama's boy. Or perhaps it was because of the word she had received from the Lord. But regardless, they definitely played favorites. And their favoritism brought a poison to their family. One of the things I love about the Bible is that uh, functional families are few and far between. And that should make us all just breathe a sigh of relief because we look into our own homes and we see a lot of dysfunction and we look into the Bible and we see a ton of dysfunction. 
We'll see in the coming chapters their favoritism encouraged a bitter rivalry that will endure for generations. See, what they should have done is they should have prepared their sons to receive God's word with gladness, right? When Rebecca received this word from the Lord, she should have gone to Isaac and said, listen, there's something going on in the womb. I went to the Lord and he told me that the younger was going to uh, 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 rule over the older, that the older would serve the younger. And I've received this from the Lord. And so we need to prepare them for this life. But instead of preparing their sons to receive God's word, their favoritism drove them apart. You see, Esau should have been brought up and be prepared to see Jacob as his, uh, uh, though he was his younger brother, to see him as his older brother, to see that God had chosen him for this line of promise and that if he would honor and serve his brother, that God would bless him, just like he promised to do. He should have been taught to see there's beauty and blessing and honoring and serving his brother. And Jacob, he should have been trained to lead with honesty, and integrity. He should have been taught that with leadership comes great responsibility to care for those entrusted to you. But instead, Isaac and Rebekah sowed unnecessary division into their family through their sin of favoritism. But what I also want you to see is despite their sin, God's sovereign purposes were still accomplished. But it also doesn't put Isaac and Rebekah off the hook. They are accountable and responsible for their decisions. All that that means is that our sin cannot thwart God's sovereign purposes. Do you see it? God's sovereign plan working itself out in real time through real human decisions. We'll see it again in the next couple of verses. Look with me at verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for my, I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went away. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So here we have this famous meal deal. Uh, even people who aren't really familiar with the Bible often know about this story. Esau has been out in the field. Maybe he was working, maybe hunting. Either way, he comes in exhausted and hungry. And Jacob is where you would expect to find them, in the tent, enjoying the, the comforts of home. And he's cooking up a stew, a fine stew. And Esau says, let me have some of that red stew. Now what should have happened? Jacob should have seen his brother hungry and tired. He should have seen it as an opportunity to provide a meal for his brother. You know, I'm an Italian. We love to show love by giving people food. I look at this and go, bro, why don't you just give the guy some food? It's a great way to show someone you love them. He should have seen his brother's hunger as an opportunity to love and bless him with the gift of a meal. But instead, Jacob, the heel grabber, sees this as an opportunity to trip up his brother and to capitalize on his brother's hunger. And so Jacob, without hesitation, almost as if he planned this, just doesn't even hesitate, says, sell me your birthright. Esau, in his foolishness, starts to think irrationally. He says, well, I'm so hungry I could die. What good is a birthright if I'm dead? 
Have you ever missed a meal or two and you've been out working and you've said those words, I'm so hungry I could die. You're not going to die. It takes a long time for a person to die of hunger. It's hyperbole. The reality is a person can go much longer without food. Esau wasn't close to death. He was being driven by an appetite. He's being ruled by the immediate, the tyranny of the urgent. What he wanted was instant gratification. And because of that, he made a stupid, foolish decision. He gave up what was incredibly valuable, really of inestimable inestimable worth. He gives it up for a bowl of soup. He seals the deal by swearing an oath and just in very almost staccato order. He ate, he drank, and he went away. And then Moses, he gives us commentary and he says, Thus Esau despised his birthright. Later on in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews will tell us that it was an unholy decision because he despised God's plan of redemption. That he, he looked down on what was really a, a beautiful and precious thing that he had. Now Jacob should have waited patiently for the time when God would bring about the right circumstances to rightfully claim the birthright. But in his impatience, he manipulated his brother and he took matters into his own hands instead of receiving by grace the birthright in due time. And Esau also sinned. He, he despised what should have been cherished. He treated something that was really special as something ordinary. Now we know from the previous verses that God had already chosen Jacob and there's no doubt about that. But what this text shows us is that Esau also made his choice as well. He wasn't coerced. He, uh, he, he wasn't manipulated by God. He chose a short-term gain over a long, with that, that included a long-term loss. And you see God's sovereign plan working itself out in real time through these real human decisions. God had sovereignly decreed that Esau would serve Jacob. And here we find out how it ultimately came to pass by Esau genuinely despising his birthright. God's sovereignty and human responsibility, these aren't mutually exclusive truths at odds with one another. Rather, they're complementary truths that coexist in a harmonious tension that is often above the scope of our human mind. Now, how do we take a big truth like that and apply it to our lives? I've got three quick applications. First one is this. Trust in God's sovereign plan and, and that and is really important, trust in God's sovereign plan and pursue godly decisions. Some of us here today need to rest in God's sovereignty like a warm blanket on a cold night. We live with so much frenetic worry. We look at the headlines, we see all that's going on, and we are just panicked about tomorrow. And we need to just rest and trust in God's sovereignty and his plan. He is working all things out, both good and bad, whether we see it or recognize it or not, for his glory and our good. He's working out every single detail of human history precisely in the direction of his intended purpose. So tonight, that's the reason you can go to sleep.
That's the reason you can go to bed tonight. You can sleep tonight because God never sleeps. He is working out his purposes for the world and for you. That's why you can look at the headlines and say, no matter what happens, God is in control. But at the same time, that should not lead you to some sort of Christian fatalism or this decision that our, uh, this idea that our decisions don't matter because everything is faded. Quite the opposite. What I hope I've been able to show in this passage is that we are responsible for every one of our decisions. It matters. They, they bring about real consequences. It matters how we live. It matters what we choose. And our job is not to pose silly questions like, well, did God ordain me to sin so we could bring about a certain set of circumstances? Am I supposed to sin right now so that God's plan goes forward? That's foolishness. No, we are called to do what the Bible calls us to do. Pursue holiness and godly decisions. We are never tasked in scripture to try to figure out how every single detail of our life fits in with the biggest plans of God's sovereign purposes. Rather, what scripture calls us to do is to take responsibility for our actions and to pursue a life where we, that is marked by a love for God above all else and to learn to live in accordance with his word. It's a both and. We trust in God's sovereign plan and we pursue godly decisions. Number two, you have a choice every single day whether you will despise or cherish the things of God. There's a clear takeaway from the story of Jacob and Esau. It's this. Esau despised what should have been cherished and it cost him greatly. The question we have to ask is this. Will we surrender things of lasting value for temporary appetites? Friends, do you value the things of God or do you value the things of the world? And if you need help answering that question, I would encourage you to look at two things. How you spend your time and how you spend your money. Both of those will tell you what you value and cherish most. And number three, remember that grace is a gift we don't deserve. Grace at its most fundamental reality is a gift we don't deserve. Remember, the Bible is not a story about how good guys win and bad guys lose. The Bible is a story about bad guys who need Jesus. There's nobody, no character in the Bible who comes out squeaky clean. Every single one needs Jesus. And the same is true for you and me. Jacob didn't deserve God's favor. He didn't deserve God's mercy any more than Esau did. It's not that Jacob was righteous and Esau was unrighteous. These are two unrighteous sons. Both of them in their own ways did things to discredit them for God's favor and mercy. But that's what God does. He gives grace to the undeserving and the ill-deserving. Grace that is earned is really not grace at all. And so the Bible is clear. God's grace comes at his discretion and at his dispensation. And grace comes to all who would receive the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. So the choice we have to make today is will we cherish and receive the grace and gift of Christ? Let's pray.